You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I'm Kathleen McLean, Adult Program Coordinator here at the AGO, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all to our Artist Talk with the 2015 AMIA AGO Photography Prize finalists, who are Dave Giordano, Annette Kelm, Owen Kidd, and Hito Stryl. And before we begin, I'd just like to take a moment to acknowledge the incredible partnership of AMIA and to personally thank Alden Hadwen, um, the Director of Community Engagement at AMIA. I'd also like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Consulate General of the Federal Republic of Germany in Toronto for their assistance in bringing our two German artists here today. Tonight's panel is moderated by AGO Chief Curator Stephanie Smith, who is stepping in gamely for Adelina Vlas, who is the lead juror on the prize and the curator of the exhibition, who had her baby early on Saturday. So Adelina can't be with us tonight, but um, she is in our thoughts, and her baby is fantastic. Um, I'm going to quickly introduce the artists and then invite everyone to come on stage. Their full and resplendent bios are on our website. So very briefly, uh, Dave Giordano was born in Detroit and lives and works in Chicago. In 2010, responding to the negative press coverage of his hometown, Giordano began working on a photographic series as a way to bear witness to what has survived in Detroit and those who are coping with the city's decline. Titled Detroit Unbroken Down, you can see it upstairs in the exhibition. Annette Kelm uh, was born in Stuttgart and currently lives and works in Berlin. Her large color prints express a research-based interest in cultural history and the history of photography. For Kelm, photography is not just a documentary tool, but an active, agitating, productive force wherein objects, textiles, and people assume a sculptural identity. Owen Kidd was born in Calgary and lives and works in Los Angeles. He refers to his work as durational photography, he mounts and frames short video loops using a lightbox format. Um, oscillating between static and moving images, his work investigates contemporary definitions of the picture, questioning the significance of these classifications. Hitor Steil was born in Munich and lives and works in Berlin. A filmmaker, writer, photographer, and teacher, Steil holds a doctorate in philosophy and is a professor of new media art at the Berlin University of the Arts. Styles' art often takes the form of video essays comprising exhaustive research, montage, first-person voiceovers, and interviews. While her subjects vary, her work is consistently based on the premise that we're always implicated, consciously and unconsciously, in the stories we tell. They will all be in discussion for about one hour, so please join me in welcoming them all to the stage. So thanks, uh, thanks to all of you for being with us tonight. I'm Stephanie, I'll be the moderator. And um, I do want to uh, extend Adelina's uh, warm wishes to all of you, as well as to the artist. She's very sorry not to be here, but she did have uh, more pressing obligations. So I hope you'll understand. So, um, so to start, um, you know, if, if each of you could 
take a few minutes to describe your work in the AGO exhibition and contextualize it in relation to your wider practice. Um, who wants to start? Owen? Hi, sure. Um, uh, my name is Owen Kidd, and I, uh, I'm not used to speaking in front of uh, large groups, so just forgive the shaky voice. Um, I primarily work in video, but uh, I work in a type of video that sort of uh, deals with uh, photography and the history of photography. Um, I've used the term durational photographs before, um, so what that means is it uh, uh, try and take all of the conditions um, that are made up in a photograph and uh, try to release the one, I guess, which would be the primary, uh, the main condition of, of the photograph, which is um, duration, and uh, put the photograph in, back into time. And in this exhibition, I've made small uh, box-like durational photographs. They're squares, and they're uh, quite deep, so they're not, not uh, as flat as I, I normally work. And then I've also made large black and white photographs that are made in the style of uh, uh, Vancouver photography. Um, they're sort of quoting or um, paying homage to that history. Um, yeah. And, um, and could you say a little more about how this work fits within the context of your larger practice? Um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a left turn for me. Um, I've been working in, with, within this system for about 10 years, and uh, I've sort of, I've learned a few things about uh, screens and um, what it means to sort of make a photograph that exists or has a, has a perpetual nature. And I'm interested in taking those things that I've learned and applying them back towards um, things that approach cinema or still photographs. So in this exhibition, you'll see that the black and white photographs, for example, each one has a, a I guess you could call it an interruption uh, that's based on my experience with screens. So one photograph has a video screen right on top of it. Uh, one, the figure that's exists on the narrative plane has a, a Photoshop tool applied, which puts it into duration. And uh, the other photograph actually sits on the corner of the gallery, so it has like a physical architecture to it. Yeah, and that's something that maybe we'll come back into a little bit later in terms of thinking about the installation choices and the interrelationships among the parts, as opposed to just the individual objects. So, um, Dave, how about you? Hi. My name is David Giordano, and I'm originally from Detroit. And uh, I've been a commercial photographer in Chicago pretty much my entire 35-year career. But uh, last several years, I've delved back into doing uh, personal projects and documentary work. I first went back to Detroit in 2010 to work on a, a re-photography project uh, because I went to school there in the 70s and I, I did a lot of architectural views. So I went back to re-photograph a lot of the same locations that uh, I did previously. But I finished that project in about 10 days. And all my friends were taking me around to the, the Packard plant and asking me to photograph all the uh, empty factories and the Michigan train station. And I did this for like three or four days and really got kind of an ill feeling about the whole 
process of uh, revisiting that that idea. And then I, I thought, well, has anyone looked at Detroit from a humanistic point of view? What, there are still 700,000 people living in this city. They all have been living here for decades. They're struggling. They're trying to survive. They're persevering and living in a very difficult city that has fallen way, way past what anyone would imagine a city to have uh, happened to. And if, if any of you here have been to Detroit, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's a city that is just uh, extremely decimated. 40% uh, of the city is vacant. Uh, unemployment is high. City services are cut to the bone. And I wanted to like revisit the people that live there and, and see how they're uh, getting by and, and what it is that, uh, that, that keeps them going. So my project became more about uh, photographing people and getting to know them, and I scoured all 138 square miles of the city, uh, and I made 33 trips to Detroit in the last five years. And uh, having a, a book uh, coming out in the next couple of weeks, it's uh, Detroit Unbroken Down, published by uh, Powerhouse Books. And uh, there's 90 photographs in the book and three essays uh, about Detroit by writers and an interview by, with me and Dawood Bay. So the work is, uh, you know, it's very heartfelt. I mean, I, I felt a connection to the city that I think a lot of photographers that have gone to Detroit to do work there have not uh, addressed. And most of them came out with a dystopian landscape that was just empty and devoid of any people. And uh, I really wanted to flip the script and, and say that people do live here and that this is a city that is, that is human and, and has activity. Yeah. And, and maybe just to take that a little further, um, so there, there is a whole genre of kind of ruined porn that's come out of, of Detroit, just these pictures, as you're saying, of, of buildings that are completely falling apart, um, but with a kind of classical you know, way of, of, of depicting them as well that refers back to uh, you know, older histories of, of image making. Um, could you talk a little bit about the specific, your specific approach to making these portraits, you know, and, and how you, what they look like? What's the kind of affect of them? How do you, how do you think about them as pictures? Well, I, you know, I think when you take a portrait of someone, you're really uh, taking a portrait of yourself as well. You know, you're... Uh, the way you approach it and, and the give and take relationship between you and your subject is a very uh, sincere and important thing to me. So uh, I try to photograph people in a very respectful way, even, even though their situation is really quite dire. But you know, I'm, I've always looked at the people I meet as, as uh, wonderful, engaging, thoughtful, uh, people so and, and I wanted to always just sort of convey that feeling in the work that uh, you know and, and I hope the viewer sort of picks up on those nuances and and feelings so okay yeah thanks yeah you're welcome okay. and Aneta um, my name is Aneta Kelm I'm from Germany Stuttgart um, and um, I'm showing here mostly still lives um, made in the studio. I usually have two paths in my work. One is more um, research project that I'm following for 
for a certain amount of time and I'm also making still lives constantly, constantly. So, yeah, but it's, I don't want to say too much about. You want to leave the work to be discovered? Is there maybe, could you maybe describe one of the series that people will encounter? Maybe the, the, the group with the tulips and the magnets? Um, they are all single images. I see them all as single, single images. Okay, single images in conversation. Uh, Is that fair or no? Yeah. Well, maybe could you describe the, um, one of the tulip pictures? Just because that might give people a little visual to understand what you're doing in the studio. Um, I usually choose objects that are kind of... Um, a translation of, I'm interested in objects that are kind of a translation of many things or they um, accumulate um, maybe um, historic things or for example there are paisley patterns up in the, on one um, image and the paisley pattern translated um, many times or used and the um, it's, it's a bit hard for me to speak in English also. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm a bit jet-lagged, so uh, um, I hope you... Um, We're with you. <laughs> so, yeah, and uh, this Paisley band, um, things are... Um, no, the... The bandana? Sorry. Yeah, they're, they're, they're used for many... Um, they have different kind of connotations or use. Do you want me to describe a little bit or is that is that helpful? Is it helpful for me to say a little bit about the piece or just the, the, the bandana, so that this is a, oh, there's a photograph that uses bandanas that have a paisley pattern that's, that's a part of what you're looking at is squares or folded bandanas on a cardboard background, but there's so much going on in all of the layers of connotation around the Paisley pattern and the ways that it moves through the world. Yeah? Yeah, maybe it's better to pass on. Okay, we'll pass on. Sorry, just so. not, not, not to ask you to work too hard, sorry. Um, Hito. Yeah, hello, my name is Hito Steyer. First of all, I would like to um, say that I'm very happy and glad to be nominated with three outstanding colleagues and I really appreciate that. Thanks also to the three of you. Um, my work is a video, it's 14 minutes long, or a video installation rather, called How Not To Be Seen. It also has a subtitle which you should maybe read, rather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think you're going to be able to see it in about maybe 28 minutes, so I'm not going to spend too much time talking about it because it's also really talkative. You know, there's someone banging on all the time, so I'm not going to <laughs> repeat that either. And it's a really obnoxious British voice. So <laughs> it's the worst thing I could find. <laughs> so be prepared. Um, what else? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, takes the form of a video manual, right? This kind of video tutorial life hack um, kind of instruction on how to become invisible in a world which is made of a lot of images. How do you do that? 
I realized that I'm watching tutorials all the time, <laughs> much more than movies or even art. I mean, I watch <laughs> 20 times as many tutorials as I watch video art, so I thought it's about time, you know, to utilize this format. That's all. Yeah, so, thank you, Hiro. So, um, you know, is this obvious from the ways that you're introducing your practices and also will be all the more clear once all of you are able to be in the gallery with the work. Um, you all have really different approaches to, um, to image making. And you're also using different uh, aspects of the kind of broad category of things that fall under the photographic. You know, they're digital, analog, still moving. Um, in some cases, you're moving out into, you know, really thinking about display and a kind of sculptural object presence. So could you talk a little bit about what, what draws you to the specific media that you're, you're working in? What do you find really compelling or exciting about the, um, the photographic within your practice? Um, I, I started to, to work in all different kind of media, but then I found out that the photographic workflow fits the most to what I like. I mean, I made sculptures first and um, paintings from slides that I projected on the canvases, but then the paintings looked really not so <laughs> as I wanted to, so I, I really liked the the photographs and then I stick with the photographs and um, I'm still working analog but it's not like an ideologic um, decision, it's more like um, still works for me and I like the camera and the slow work and um, I just didn't find a digital camera that, that fit the um, 4x5 film format or 6x7 that I like. I'm also shifting the working with seven, um, 35 millimeter film or six by seven, four by five, and I like to, to bring the formats together and, yeah. yeah. I mean, is there anything about the quality of the image that you can produce with analog versus digital or about the kind of, I don't know, just the process of working with that, that camera in a way that's maybe a little slower than the digital. Is there anything about that that's appealing or does that move into the space of nostalgia and it's not interesting? I guess I would work um, as slow with the digital um, as well. Okay, thanks. Yeah, Davis, ready. Yes, uh, I shoot everything digitally. Uh, in my commercial practice, I shot eight by 10 ectochrome for 25 years. So when I went digital, 2004, I bought a Hasselblad H1, which was, at the time was, had the largest image sensor and, and capture medium format digital camera at the time. But now I shoot with a Hasselblad H4D with a 50 megabyte back. And I, I absolutely love digital. It's, uh, it's clean, it's seamless, uh, there's no grain. I can make large prints. Uh, I do all my own printing, my own uh, Photoshop, uh, uh, work. I don't farm it out to anybody else, and, and I just feel that that process is, is a very personal thing uh, to the way I visualize my work. So, uh, I'm, I, a lot of people don't like, you know, like they, they just shoot film, you know, they, they just, oh, they hate digital and all this stuff, but I, I don't think it makes any difference. You just take photographs, you know, I mean, 
to me, that's what's, what it's all about. But I've embraced digital for 10 years now, and I just think You're it's not a, a wonderful medium. Yeah. Um, I started off as a filmmaker, but um, I've, I just found a lot of restrictions in cinematic theory and cinematic practice, and so I became like, yeah, I just wanted to make anti-cinema. So as a result, if I still used a lens-based machine, then I was making photographs. Um, so I sort of became a photographer accidentally. Um, yeah. And maybe uh, if you if you don't want to talk about the piece, we don't have to. But we had a really nice conversation yesterday about the. There's one um, one of your durational photographs that looks at first glance as if you're just looking at a um, shadows, sort of dappled shadows of a tree on the ground. And you walked me through the the process and the specific choices that you made to make something that looks like a video but is actually coming from another kind of studio-based photographic practice. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's, that's an extension of uh, the, the, my sort of practice moving into the studio uh, using the computer, something I've done more in the last couple of years. Hito and I were just talking before we, we came up here about uh, the definition of the GIF and, and whether or not that's sort of being finalized or not. Um, that, that particular work is two still photographs that have been animated together to create a video effect. Um, but some of the other pieces, I, I actually use video capture, so multiple frames. Could you um, uh, take us into the, what, what, what were you guys debating? Uh, just, Hito, if you want to jump in. I mean, I, maybe other people can jump in here too, but just what, what, what actually a GIF uh, is these days. Is it, does it have to be, uh, well, essentially it's a loop. It's a sort of seamless loop or endless loop, I should say. But uh, it started off as being create, you know, something that was created out of a photograph still. But um, I, I would venture that it could possibly be a, a video loop as well. And why is that something that you care about? Uh, I, you know, I, I guess the, the main answer to that would be um, the machine that I use sort of posed the question. I mean, it's been about, I don't know, what, 12 years since cameras came out, which had, where, where they had the, still cameras came out where the button was on it, where you could just turn it to video. And that was sort of a major moment. I mean, it's, it seems so normal to us now, but... Um, I think that that created a whole realm of possibilities for people that wanted to um, consider just that subtle shift, you know, start capturing motion without creating a story, without telling a story or dealing with narrative and all that sort of stuff. Does that answer the question? I think sort so. Of. Yeah, so it's a, a blurry space and it sounds like the GIF in particular is emblematic for you of this blurry space between still and moving technologies. Is that Yeah, true? I, really, yeah. I really like the way that... Uh, capitalism, how its machines really sort of hold these little uh, landmines in them, which can be as simple as just a button that turns, you know, something from still to motion. And uh, I think it's our job to sort of capitalize on those little things. What, do any of the rest of you want to pick that thought up? No? Yes? No. Okay, so um, Hiro, uh, what about you in terms of the, the, you know, the specific choices to work within the, um, within the space of, of video and so much created within the computer? Yeah, so this is the truth. I'm not a photographer at all. <clears throat> I 
was trained as a filmmaker and then I became a video maker and now I have no idea what I'm doing. But I think <laughs> that applies more or less to most people working in image making, right? I mean, the technology, it, it's a bit strange to say, but uh, it's always more advanced in a way. It opens up possibilities or opportunities that people are really struggling to even identify or understand because I think that by now, you know, a piece of music can be transformed into an image and the other way round. And most of the, yeah, it's, it's interesting to say, but most images nowadays are not visual anymore because they are not made for human senses. They, are, they consist of metadata or of pulses or of charges in magnetic, um, what do you call it? Magnetic charges. So what, what is the image? What is it now? How do you work with it? Um, my, parts of my work is not lens-based anymore. It's really surprising. It's now being generated. I'm trying to construct it. So basically, the media, different media, are changing at a breathtaking speed, and probably so are the practices also. And could you talk a little bit about your choice to, um, you know, you're often revealing the mechanisms. You know, you're showing like the moments where the computer screen will be visible within an animation that was, or a, a um, uh, a video work that was created within the computer. Yes, I mean, I'm, Owen was referring to that also. There is so many decisions being hardwired into the technology already in forms of presets mainly, or of decisions that have been taken for you already. Um, and of course, I mean, these are not only presets to create imageries, they, they are basically mindsets also, they are ideologies, they um, nudge you to see things in a certain way. So obviously I'm, I'm very much interested in that. Yeah, um, and maybe to carry that forward from a slightly different angle, so in different ways all of you are um, engaging some kind of space between truth and, and, um, and fiction. So could you talk about that and maybe um, the documentary impulse in your relation to that? Well, so, uh, since I'm probably the most documentary-based photographer in the group here, uh, when you talk about truth, you know, it's, it's a very ambiguous sort of idea because photography is, by its very nature, is extremely ambiguous. Uh, a lot of my photographs uh, have descriptive text uh, applied to them because I feel it's important to continue the dialogue and the narrative about, about the person that I've photographed. But, uh, you know, I mean, that quote about, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words is really, if you break it down into t a ten different stories of a hundred words per story, you get 10 different stories about that photograph. So the truth is really pretty elusive in a lot of, lot of work, but uh, 
but you don't have to abide by that through all photographic practices, obviously. But but my work, it's it's important for me to get to the bottom of the story about the person that well, I photographed. And it's interesting maybe to think a little bit about um, the difference between truth and authenticity, um, because it seems like there's something that you're trying to convey that's some that's coming from a place of authentic interrelation between you and the subjects that you're choosing to portray. But it's also so that it's meant to read as truthful, but there's also, you know, you, you've said that you're, you know, you're helping to direct the shot. You're obviously making very specific choices as any photographer does about lighting and color and, you know, frame. Um, so it's complicated. It's not an Much easy so, thing. yeah. I, I think, like I said, you're, you're more an extension, the photograph is an extension of who you are as well. So that truth is revealed in many ways, hopefully in a good way, for, for me anyway. I mean, and, and Hito, when um, sort of watching your, 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 um, your works, you're definitely creating fantastical spaces and there's a lot of uh, play and wit within the, the construction. They're pleasurable to spend time in, but there are cutting truths that you're pushing towards in terms of, you know, pushing a uh, kind of critical assessment of what it means to live in the world right now in a condition of surveillance all the time. Um, so it feels like those, you know, truth and artifice are absolutely interwoven. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love the truth. It doesn't love me back. <laughs> I think that needs to be on some t-shirts, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Aneta, did you want to speak to that? Um, I think I also maybe still using analog because I'm not really interested in, um, in manipulating images like digital. Of course, in the dark room, I make some burning or whatever, but... Um, I think it becomes more like um, painting or like the image. It's, it's a difficult uh, decision what to change if you have the options. So it's kind of easy not to have the options. Well, one of the things that, um, that uh, I've responded to in looking your at your installation uh, is that you know, there, in, there are some moments where you have very similar, distinct individual pictures that are similar in terms of the subjects that they're depicting, but with slight differences that then ask you to pay attention to the choice, the photographic choice behind the setup. It's never a straight still life that you can just appreciate as a beautiful thing. You're calling our attention to your choices and... It's also about time and, um, yeah, the, or, or breaking the single images. Making us think. I think it's fascinating that in 2015 that the issue of truth claims and photography and veracity and all these things are still, you know, an important subject after how many years of, of critical thought on the subject. I, I think it says a lot about the power of the camera, whether good or not, it's just... Uh, in the digital age. Right. I mean... Yeah. You can do anything with a digital image today and, and alter its its meaning, and it's seamless. So it's it's a it's a it's a slippery slope sometimes to tell the truth. So um, 
Maybe it's a good moment then to throw in um, a question from Adelina, who did manage to uh, step away from new baby to, to send a question for tonight. Um, and that is, uh, you know, so how do you see your works contribute, add to, or challenge the image-saturated moment that we're currently in? I think it's always, um, it's, it's also, it's always exciting to add an image and um, even if there are so many to find um, my own image, that's kind of fun for me or is that, yeah. But I don't see any difference. I mean, if there are many images or not so many for me, I'm, Owen, did you want to say? Uh, how, so the question is, how, how does our work contribute? Yeah, how do you see your work contribute, add to, or challenge the image-saturated moment we are currently in? I think, I mean, I, I hate to keep relying on like the, the technological answer, um, but that would be, in this instance, just the way that cameras have changed, our, mostly our phones, and the way that we have access to, to video instantly. I think it's just cool how, you know, we're so saturated with uh, information, but you see people just standing and stopping on the street or anywhere and just holding still for, you know, the amount of time that it takes for an Instagram video to record or a Vine video or, or whatever they want to do. So there, it actually has, in a way, slowed us down, even if it's for 20 seconds or 30 seconds. And you know, given um, so that you, men you mentioned Vine, so you know these super super short, I guess, are they gifts? I don't know. I mean, these like little little clips, um, and it's a very very popular image sharing or, or um, little video sharing mechanism. Did you ever think about using that as a source for sending your durational films around? I mean, what what is it about the the specificity of a sculptural kind of presentation in a gallery context versus sending it out into the world in a more diffuse form that appeals to you? Yeah, I, the, the images in the show sort of recall, the square format recalls Instagram, or like a button that you'd see on, on, on a phone or something like that. So it d definitely holds that idea within it. In terms of like translating that, I think it, 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 I, have, I have sort of sent them out a little bit that way, but there's you're a strange frowning. crossover. What's that? But you're frowning as you say that. I know. <laughs> I know, I just, I really like, uh, you know, the space of the studio or the gallery and just sort of the, the moment where you can isolate an image from the world and frame it and make an object out of it. I, I still attest to that or try to, or attempt to create an art object. So the internet for me is, uh, it's a confusing place in that, in, on those terms. Yeah, does Hiro, do you want to respond? Well, saturation is a very relative term. I assume that people in all ages have stated there is either too many images or not enough images, that somehow there is an imbalance and there should be more or less, and there is never the amount that people would like to have. So I think that's a, that's a pretty um, general condition but to really answer your question very precisely, I mean, we are now all set in a space 
which is totally saturated with images because you know everyone's phones is um, receiving Wi-Fi and there are so many images invisible ones traveling through the air right now so you could say that the atmosphere is absolutely charged and saturated not only with images but all sorts of data and what do you do? I think you just keep breathing that's what you do <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think uh, I think there's about 2.8 billion pictures taken every day. So it's you have to filter all of that. You have to find an audience for your work with that kind of saturation out. So it, it's very kind of splintered and everything. That's, that's but a, very true. This is uh, sorry, I didn't want to no, interrupt no, that's, you. It's fine. But I mean that's 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 how you sort of like overcome the saturation aspect of of the media is, is trying to like yes, I pinpoint, think this is really know. a new dimension, not, not new, probably not new, but a very important dimension of image making now is not uh, creating more, but filtering or cutting down or trying to extract some sort of signal from noise, right? right. So I think that that's more or less the challenge of the current moment to switch to that um, mindset to that mode. Um, you know, that's, that's interesting then to, to kind of circle back to something that um, Owen was saying about how the, the space of the gallery actually allows a more kind of focused, direct encounter with the thing, you know, in a way that it would not, uh, it might not uh, have as hospitable a reception if it's moving out just through this undifferentiated uh, uh, space of the internet. So maybe that points to something, um, some kind of power that we could um, think about enacting within the space of the museum and the space of the gallery as a, as a precinct, you know, that, that allows a certain kind of slower encounter with the content and with images. Um, I don't know, is that a good proposition or not? Well, I mean, I, I was trying to make my previous statements in a completely different framework because this is how the act of seeing changes as a whole in my view, right? Because I think that a lot of seeing or maybe the majority of seeing nowadays is being done by algorithms and machines and they are filtering, they are trying to extract noise from the signal. It's less about seeing or identifying or creating new images, it's about pattern recognition. So this is, I mean, of course, I mean, there is things that people could do in a museum or not, but I think this raises completely new questions in relation to the act of seeing as such. If pattern recognition becomes such an important issue, something really sad happens, which is that basically mostly only patterns can be recognized that are already known. Right? So the act of seeing is being reduced to recognition or to the identification of an old or already known pattern. We, we see that in the smartphone camera algorithms, which um, because the, the lenses are really tiny. I mean, look at your phones, they are tiny, they are made of plastic, they don't see anything, I mean, they see something, <laughs> but you don't really know what that is. So basically you need an algorithm inside the phone that cleans all the data, you know, 
But how is it programmed? How does it know what to see and what to discard? It knows because it has some, you know, implanted knowledge it recognizes instead of seeing, which means that basically it recognizes the things it knows already. It knows how to see, which means that the unknown becomes invisible, which is a really sad proposition. Although it seems like that's also um, something that you're proposing, there's maybe a kind of judo move that you can make, you know, by taking that fact of pattern recognition and then trying to camouflage yourself and your actions, you know, by knowing the patterns and using them in a way that's not expected. Yes, yes. There's always the possibility of pattern misrecognition, which is very interesting. Did you, did you follow this inceptionism um, thing? You know, Google developers came up with a new method of creating images out of nothing, out of noise. They had algorithms running over noise, recognizing shapes, but they were basically dreaming up those shapes. They created, I mean, these images looked really monstrous. They recognized mainly dogs and infants' faces in, in basically noise and nothingness because those machines or those algorithms had been trained to see these things already. I mean, they were like images of nightmares, basically. Very, very interesting. So Owen's nodding. Did you want to pick up on that, or are you just processing? Oh, I, I mean, I, I think we ignore machine pictures at our own risk. I, I know there are also um, machines that are using cameras to take pictures for each other, too. So I just, you know, I'm, I'm always concerned about that, how the loss of the human interaction, um, the human touch with the camera. Um, I think it, you know, it could be liberating in a way because you know, it allows the camera to follow its own program. But uh, that's also daunting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so do you see, um, I mean, do you feel a potential for agency as an artist in uh, kind of in relation to that machine moment? Yeah, I think that's really going to be the task for uh, maybe even the next generation to really identify uh, those, those issues um, with automatic picture making and try to arrest them and use them. I, you know, I still believe that um, because they are, these things are agents of an economic mode that is all-encompassing but also kind of dumb at the same time, uh, there's always going to be potential for some sort of moment of liberation or freedom or, or reuse, repurpose. So I want to shift the topic a little bit to, um, to audience. And I'm curious how you guys um, think about audience in relation to your work um, in whatever way you want to take that. Dave, are you nodding? Are you saying you're ready? <laughs> uh, I love an audience. For my work, I mean, it's why I work in a sense. Uh, my projects are all long-term. Uh, they're all sort of in the back of my mind. They're all like book-based. They're all about stories. They're all socially relevant. I don't want to take photographs and just put them in my drawer 
and not let anyone see them. I, I'm, I'm always out in the world working. I mean, that is my inspiration, is to be out investigating, exploring, revealing, meeting, discovering uh, the world around me. And I, and I, I want to be able to express everything that I, I learn and experience and relate it in a, in, a, in a way that other people could understand. And, and I think that's the reason I take photographs. And, and do you think about um, the audience, this kind of audience, um, not the talk audience, not that you're not wonderful, but the, um, the, the, sh the audience in the, the, that will encounter the work in the gallery space, um, do you think about that audience in a different way than the audience that will encounter your work as a series of images in a book? Uh, a book is uh, far more uh, comprehensive and uh, tells a much bigger story. So the work that is in, the, in an exhibition sort of takes on a, a more pristine, important role, but it's, it's much more limited, you know, in its scope. So, uh, and, and, it's, and it's a little bit more privileged to work in a museum because not everyone can see it. Not a lot of people want to go to a museum to see artwork. You know, so it's, it's a little intimidating to a lot of people, I think. So uh, a book is, is, is far more uh, democratic and spread out and uh, easier to access. So, yeah, yeah well, I think there's a big difference between the two. And there's also something really intimate about the act of holding, you know, holding a book and flipping through pages that you're touching. It's a different kind of relationship to the, the photograph and your own selection. Yeah, um, Annetta? Yeah, of course, the audience is very important for me. But when I'm working, I don't think much about the audience. I think more about the picture. And then is there a moment, um, like how do, how do you think about audience when you're in the process of putting a display together and sort of making your editing choices? And mm. I mean, here I was thinking it's better I was thinking about eventually showing the last body of work that I did, but it was about uh, representation of feminism in Germany, and I thought it's maybe not so good because it's, it's, it's more specific related to Germany, so I thought it's easier to relate to the still lives. Yeah, so there's a kind of um, an awareness of context and how the work might be received differently in different places, and so yeah, you're thinking yeah. that through. Peter? Oh, yeah. Mm, so in every installation of mine, I try to provide at least one spot where people can go to sleep <laughs> <laughs> and just ignore the work. I think that's very, very important. It's a very important. This is why I love the black box so much, right? The black box is a fantastic device, especially in a museum where you're basically under constant surveillance, not only from cameras, but there's a kind of mutual surveillance. You have to behave, you know, if you're not dressed appropriately, you're worried that someone, I don't know, might look, look at you or something. So I think it's very important to have dark spaces, ideally dark rooms, <laughs> where there's no work going on whatsoever, which give you a, just a respite, you know, from the, from the terror of the white cube. So the, <laughs> the museums are getting a, a real rap from you guys tonight. <laughs> yeah. I, w I was going to ask you, Hito, um, how do you uh, engage with um, 
like the cinematic uh, nature of, of the black box. Uh, I know that I've seen pictures online of, of the way that you've um, put grids on the floor and arranged seating, like lawn chairs and stuff like that, which was really cool. But I just wondered if you thought about um, yes. that sort of traditional you having... Know, yeah, sorry. yeah I mean, people have bodies, right? And if they walk and stand all the time, these bodies tend to get tired. So I just <laughs> tried to take it into account, and I realized that in my work, you know, I, the chairs recline more, <laughs> which means that probably people are more and more tired. They work too much. They sit in front of computers all the time. So I think at least, you know, when, when watching something, they should be able to lie back. I mean, relax. to pick that up a little further, um, in your uh, installation at Artist Space, you had uh, more there was a very sculptural setting to facilitate the viewing and it felt very of a piece with the content on the screen and so more so than the black box space for this presentation, although there is an adjacent installation. So could you talk a little about how you make that choice between the more pristine or the more kind of sculptural theatrical space for the bodies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I try to find different excuses, you know. <laughs> There's a blue blue box, there will be a red box soon, so, but it's basically all the same. Um, did anybody else want to pick up? So, um, just to give you warning, we're going to um, open it up to a couple of questions from the audience um, in a few minutes, so be thinking about things that you'd like to ask, either to all the panelists or to individuals. So um, I wanted to ask a kind of old school question about art history and to see if that's something that motivates you. Are there specific you know, ways of thinking about your practice in relation to past art that, um, that you're interested in exploring? Well, uh, we're all influenced by other artists, that's for sure. But uh, you know, in terms of a history, uh, yesterday was history, you know, I mean, it's just kind of like, so it, it's sort of today is, is a relevant term and timing is kind of everything when it comes to history. So uh, my work, I don't know that I could have done uh, my work a year from now that I've completed at this point. I mean, I just feel that what I've done is like, needs to be seen at this point. So the history of that is, is sort of like knocking at the door for me right now. It's the way I feel about my work. So and I don't want to miss an opportunity to uh, say something about Detroit that otherwise might be overlooked. I mean, the thing about Detroit right now is it's going through a renaissance and uh, a rebirth, but that's a very small part of the city, and I want to make sure that the other 130 square miles of the city doesn't get ignored. So it's, in terms of that, that history, that art history, it's, it's relevant for me today. But, so it's, does that make sense? Yeah, um, Owen? yeah I'm, I think as I'm trying to sort of perform one medium within another, uh, I find it like, um, it's almost, it's almost like an experiment, so I, I try to reduce the amount of variables that would interfere with that, so that would include my own 
to a certain extent, my own style and, and artistry. Um, so, uh, you know, I find it better to like perform genres from within painting and photography, sort of, um, or just to sort of uh, imitate those. I learn learn more about the system. A kind of uh, drawing on some ready-made patterns in a way. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Aneta? Um, I um, I see myself like in the tradition of. Um, conceptual art from the 70s or photography, conceptual photography, and um, I'm more interested in the uh, in the genre of uh, of um, like um, advertising photography or uh, like uh, landscape or portrait, like a, not doing a portrait in the sense to um, depict uh, uh, the personality or more to, to make a, um, a common um, uh, image or like to, to, to make a, uh, yeah, to, to, to capture the, the history or to, to combine a lot of um, aspects so you're drawing on a, on a lot of histories and pulling them into your work as points of reference? As point of reference and um, accumulation of... Um, yeah. it's, it's really hard for me to, to, like to, to talk about work from the outside. I mean, I'm making the work and it's really... Um, uh, it's hard to, to just to be restricted on one, um, yeah. It's, it's rich and complicated. There's a lot going on um, in each picture, and we're asking you to talk about it without the work here, so. So um, maybe, um, Pita, did you want to respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I know very little about art history, and, um, but, but I will just tell you one brief anecdote of something I was really fascinated by lately, there was the oldest ritual structure in the world discovered only around 20 years ago in southern Turkey. And it completely overturns all the ideas that people had about that period. So it's a huge temple consisting of round pillars, pillars arranged in, in a circle, looking almost like Stonehenge by 80s. 8,000 years earlier, and no one knows these pillars are carved with images of animals and, you know, different things that no one has any idea how to interpret. But the interesting thing is that by making these structures and also by creating these images, these pillars, the people of the time completely managed to create a different social organization because, you know, they had to build it. They, they were hunters and gatherers, and then they became, I don't know, a tribe or something which definitely had some kind of social hierarchy. So by making these images, they completely changed the way they were living together. So that's, that's really the question that intrigues me. What kind of structures 
are we creating nowadays by making all these images? How are we changing the way we live together? What kind of states or tribes or whatever it is are being created by this you know, widespread practice of making images of this mass activity? That's really a question which, which I find extremely urgent. Do any of you want to pick up on that notion? Or should we throw it open to the audience? Okay, so we've got time for just a couple of questions. Um, anyone want to kick us off? There's a mic over on the side. It's a friendly crowd. Yeah, we've Oh, and uh, you, oh, you had mentioned that uh, the, the work that you're doing currently is kind of in reference or um, drawing upon kind of Vancouver photography or kind of trying to replicate that. Um, and I was just wondering how you would kind of define Vancouver photography. Um, have you seen the show? Okay. Um, th th yeah, it's... Uh, I kind of came out of that... Uh, I, I hate, hesitate to call it a school... I came out of that program or that style and uh, took a break for many years trying to uh, work within a different medium. But uh, I, f I think it's, for me, it's sort of like a necessary moment to commune with that, uh, with that style, but uh, also to deal with it on its narrative terms. I think I was sort of talking about in the beginning the way that uh, um, uh, things that I've learned from the video screen and that and that extension of a photograph. Uh, now I'm thinking about applying those back to uh, to still images, and I wanted to use still images that had a cinematic construction. So um, you can imagine the type of Vancouver photographs that have that, uh, and then just make a specific interruption in that on that plane. I, yeah. Thank you. But yeah, we should talk about it in the space. I can, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Anyone else? Yeah, there's one up front. Hi, um, my question is for Hito. Um, a few months ago, I was reading your essay on the poor image, and I was just wondering if that had any relation to your work for the AGO. Yeah, actually, it has. I mean, usually uh, uh, there is not really a direct relation between texts and um, works, but that one, that work is dealing with the question of resolution. How much resolution does one own? I think it's really about ownership of resolution. Who controls it? What, when, when, when do you reach the threshold of visibility? How many DPI? <laughs> Is it like 72? You know, in Greek philosophy, the, I think, sophists, you know, they had a very interesting question. How many hairs on your head do you need for someone to be called bald? Is it like six hairs or five hairs? You know, when is the threshold? <laughs> so in that sense, resolution has a similar problem built in, you know. At what point does an image turn abstract? And wh where does visibility set in? So in, in that sense, it relates to the idea of the 
poor image, which is the degraded images, which is kind of, you know, destroyed by, has been uh, wrecked by its own circulation. It's, it's not, of course, it's not an illustration of that essay, but there is similar ideas being played out. Thank you. So if we have one more question, we have time. Right here. Hi, my question is for Hito. Uh, if I understood correctly in your talk, you addressed something about the presets that lead us to a certain kind of, I don't want to put words in your mouth, a certain kind of mentality or a certain kind of um, mindset. Um, and I understood you were talking about the kinds of technologies that we use. I wonder if you could give us an example of a preset or um, a, a way of working that's been thrust upon us or offered to us that leads to a certain kind of thinking or behavior. Yeah, yeah. So I have a favorite example. I have been striving to learn After Effects. I managed somewhat. Anyhow, so this has a plugin, a 3D plugin, which is called Element 3D. Doesn't matter. It comes with a few models for free. That's the only ones you don't have to buy. So please guess, what kind of models do you get for free to construct your worlds with? I will tell you. It's a pack for casino. The second one is for weapons, of course. <laughs> so basically, you are asked to learn how to deal with 3D modeling by using models of, you know, dollar bills and RPGs. So <laughs> that's a real preset, I think, right? That's an answer. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that's a really good spot to wrap up. Um, so I want to thank the artists for your um, extraordinary work upstairs um, and also all of the work that's out in the world and for your generosity in sharing your thoughts with us tonight. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.